Welcome to CPP Chat, the latest podcast for C++ developers by C++ developers. Before we continue, I'd like my uh, fellow host, John, to read this week's disclaimer. Uh, thanks, Phil. Disclaimer this week. The medical information on our website is provided without any representations or warranties expressed or implied. You must not rely on the information on our website as an alternative to medical advice from your doctor or other professional health care providers. Thank you very much. Ah, so uh, today we have one uh, new guest hasn't been on before and two old timers. Uh, ben Craig is a principal software engineer at National Instruments, and this is his first time joining us on this side of the camera. How are you today, Ben? Doing good. Uh, have you uh, have you been uh, watched many of the shows previously? Uh, I have not watched many, but I've listened to many on my uh, drive to and from work. So you kind of know what we're about. More or less. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Michael Case is no stranger to these microphones. Uh, Michael was on our very first episode, um, but he hasn't been back a while. But I think when he got on CPP chat like two weeks ago, it or CPP cast a couple of weeks ago, it made us, him miss us. So, Michael, how are you handling this sudden fame for being on the on a show with a big audience like that? It, um, you know, to be honest, it was nerve wracking, which is almost funny, but... <laughs> I kept waiting for Rob to ask me the question that would just like throw me over the edge and I'd be, what do I do? What do I say? <laughs> you what, never worried about What's funny about that, John, is John, uh, that Rob and Jason are nicer than you are, John. And so I'm, <laughs> this is, this is the forum in which I'm going to get the question I can't answer. That's right. You, yeah, yeah. you know, John's going to figure out what's going to wind you up and get you saying, we don't oh, need yes. no, we don't need no papers. <laughs> We don't need no stinking papers. (laughs) So another individual who is no uh, stranger to the show is, but hasn't been on for a while, is Odin Holmes. Odin, you haven't been on under this format, have you? Nope. Nope. First time with Phil. So we'll see how different it is. All right. Well, you know, Phil, he's this cruel slave master. (laughs) So I'll turn it over to you, Phil. What are we, uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, before we get to the main topic, we have uh, a few bits of news to to get through. As usual, we have some uh, conference-related announcements. So uh, Pacific Plus Plus, uh, uh, the tickets are still open. The the speakers have now been announced. I believe they're all on the the website. So if you're in that region thinking of going, have a look there. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a a really great conference. Uh, For CPPCon... Uh, I'm going to hand back to to John, who's <laughs> going to be a bit best qualified to talk about that. I think, John. Um, right. Um, so we we haven't made a big announcement about this, but we um, be, once we figure out who all the speakers are, one of the things that we want to do is we we want to publish the schedule for the conference as soon as possible, and but that takes a long time. There's an awful lot of variables, and as you can imagine, uh, scheduling constraints. But the but one of the things that we have to do is we have to send back to all the speakers a list of all the other sessions, so they can tell us schedule me before this session or after this session or not opposite this session. And so that list, if you would like to know all the sessions that you're going to see at CPPCon, and I have to say. We don't mean all because there are a lot of things that get scheduled at the last minute. It's that kind of conference. Um, but if you want to see the bulk of the conference, those are actually online. We have not published them. You won't find a link to it from the website. But if you go to the CPP Lang 
Slack channel and you go into the CPPCon channel, there is that link has been posted there. And if you uh, if it has scrolled off, you can ask somebody else for the link. But anyway, it's the list of all of the sessions. And I don't mind saying I think it's a pretty impressive list of sessions. I think you're going to be pretty excited about what we have. So if you're curious about that, that list is now available. And if, if anyone wants to come and see one of my talks and they don't want to, to miss somebody else's in particular, I will be taking bribes in order to, to make sure that's good. Just let me know. So uh, another conference that, that's uh, coming up, of course, is my one, uh, C++ on C. Um, so we're getting closer to the end of the month now. So anyone thinking about submitting now is really the time to get that, that submission in. Uh, we will be closing at the end of the month. Um, and then meeting C++. Uh, um, schedule's not up yet, I think, but the speakers have been notified. So that program is in process. Uh, meeting C++, of course, another great conference. Maybe another good one this year. Uh, and then one final piece of news I've just slipped in, just abusing just my wanna, position here. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to mention about meeting C++. For those who are interested in embedded, there's a embedded pre-conference day for for meeting C++ this year. It's an experiment also, for him. It's his first time doing that. Very relevant to our topic today, so yeah, uh, I don't right, mind right. that one. Uh, yeah. Or pointed out. So, yeah, the other piece of news that I wanted to to slip in um, relates to my uh, my JetBrains role. So I thought this was going to be interesting to, to a lot of people. Uh, one of our products, uh, ReSharper C++, so the, the plugin for Visual Studio for, for C++. Um, now, as of the, the latest EAP, that's what we call a beta, uh, for uh, 2018.2, should be released uh, the next uh, week or two. Um, now support C++ CLI. So uh, some people have not heard of that at all. If you have heard of it, you'll know that you really want this. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, you're probably better off that way, actually. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's basically the interop language between C Sharp and, and C++. So given that we, we cover C Sharp and C++, but we weren't covering C++ CLI, uh, this is a nice one to uh, to get covered. So there's actually a blog post that I've just written that's going to go out in the next few days. Uh, so um, maybe I'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes if that gets done in time. So that's the uh, that's the news out of the way. Um, the the topic for today is going to be in the sphere of embedded development, which is uh, quite a big topic with uh, quite a lot of different directions we should go in. So we just got a, a mixed bag of, of people from within that domain. With us, I'm just going to see where it goes. Got a few uh, talking points, uh, possibly, and just to kick it off, uh, I actually want to mention a, a tweet that uh, that I saw today from uh, John Regger, because I, I thought this would uh, this would get the discussion rolling. Um, and he said, "I think it's 100% clear that the C++ committee should remove volatile." So who wants to tell us why that's actually relevant to embedded in the first place? Well, was this in jest? Was I, it what? Sorry. It, was this in jest? Was he was he joking around? I, I don't think he was in hundred percent serious, but I don't think he was joking either. I think it was okay. a uh, a serious um, uh, hyperbole, maybe. So volatile is volatile is the one keyword that um, that is the embedded keyword, and so it's like you're taking our one last <laughs> away. <laughs> we don't even Most get the, to use real C plus plus, and now they're going to take our one thing away from us. Yeah, the, the one thing that makes it useful. <laughs> Well, if they gave us something better, they could take it. Like if they gave us like volatile memory addresses or a more well-defined volatile. I, think, I mean, it seems like so I, what I volatile think... means different differs 
considerably between different compilers, especially if they're not the big three. I think that's that's one of the issues. I so my story is I was hoping to tell my story. I I actually it's it's the one paper that I've actually written and submitted to the committee, but before the committee even met, I withdrew it because someone pointed out this is, well there's some issues here that we're going to have to think through a little bit because I was writing this actually with Dan Sachs. Uh, we were writing it together and we submitted it and then someone raised something and Dan said, yeah, we're going to have to think about that. Let's just withdraw it and put it back in. But what we were trying to do is I was talking with Dan and he was talking about um, a trick he used of if you, if you have a read-only port, then he essentially makes it a const object and then he just calls members on it and, and reads from it. And what I pointed out is it's in C++, you can't have something that is const that is not initialized. The language requires that. I mean, he was essentially casting it to a const object. So the object never really got initialized. And he was, he was essentially lying to the, uh, to the compiler about what was actually happening. He was doing this cast and saying, well, there's a const object when, in fact, it's not even an object at all. It's never been constructed. And that all works. But what I pointed out, I said, if the compiler ever has an optimizer that can actually see what you're doing, it can optimize all that away. It's completely undefined behavior. And so, and so what I said is what we should do is we should, we should get the committee to say, if an object is both const and volatile, it does not have to be initialized. Because that's what, he, that's what we're really trying to say. We're trying to say, because if, if you have a read-only port, then you don't want to write to it. You want to read only, so you make it const. But... If you make something constant C++, it has to be initialized. The compiler has to give it its initial value. And, and that's exactly what you do not want in this situation. So I wrote this paper up. As I was investigating the paper, I talked to, um, I talked to Richard Smith. And he actually asked me to include something else in the paper, which was probably a mistake because that's kind of what sucked the paper away. Because it was like, that's really undefined behavior. But what he told me is, he said, here's the real problem with volatile. The standard says what volatile is. And if somebody were to implement a compiler following the rules of volatile, it wouldn't work. If it's following what the standard says about volatile, because as you guys just hinted, there's there are um, there are things about volatile that compiler people just know this is how it's used. This is what we can and cannot do. That's not that's not in the standard. It's not actually documented. And that's the problem that we have with volatile is, and I think that may be part of what uh, John Rieger is trying to say, which is that what the standard says about volatile and the way it's actually used are not exactly the same thing. And if you actually were to figure out what you mean, you are going to, you're probably going to make certain optimizations that aren't, I mean, there's no way to split it out. And and so that's the problem. In fact, one of the, what what it was that um, um, Smith had asked me to add to the, um, to it was to specify a particular case and saying, can I make this optimization on a volatile object? And the problem was, well, you can't read the standard because the standard doesn't really say what it needs to say. You just kind of have to know. There's, a, there's kind of this non-documented agreement between compiler makers and embedded engineers about what volatile really means. So beyond just what volatile means there, most the, the biggest usage of volatile... Uh, that I know of is it involves casting address to like a volatile pointer. And that's just big piles of undefined behavior right there because you never made an int or whatnot in that location. And that's a huge, that's 
th there's papers going on right now to try to fix that in other cases using this thing called stood bless that doesn't exist right now. And so, yeah, there, there's there's piles of problems already, but the the compilers mostly make it work. Right, but they're not following the standard to do that. What they're following is industry practice that says, if we don't do this, we're going to break a lot of code. So we have to do this, even though it's not really what the standard says. I believe uh, if you are telling your compiler that you're in a freestanding environment, then uh, a variable is static storage duration, which uh, probably would be that uh, um, input FIFO buffer report does not have to be zero initialized. It's implementation defined, but only in a freestanding. It doesn't have to be zero initialized, but you have to have made an int somewhere before you point at it. So if you just have an address and cast it. No, no, sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm out of order. I'm responding to uh, uh, um, John's uh, story about the uh, const. Uh, okay. I believe that is still conforming. Okay. But yeah, what what you mentioned, yeah, that that makes sense to where if you wanted to have a static const volatile and try to throw a few other keywords in there for good measure too, uh, <laughs> if you had one of those, then maybe you don't have to have it. You can assign it a value, but it isn't required to actually have that value. Well, no, the idea is it's read only, so you don't want to assign it anything. And in fact, that's the problem: is that when you say that it's const in in C plus plus, you Make something const. It's got to have an initial value. Syntactically, you can't say, oh, I'm creating uh, a const object at this location and and have it. Um, that's what he was doing. He was doing placement new to create an object in a particular location and um, playing games so that there was never anything that was actually written. Oh, yeah. So he wasn't like putting it there in the linker script. He was placement newing no. it. Ah, okay, I get it. Sorry. Yeah, he, yeah, he was placement newing it and, and nothing would ever get written to the memory. And that was fine because... The object's this pointer was pointing to the port that he wanted to read. And he wrote all his member functions to do these. I mean, it was really brilliant. It, it made it so usable. It, it improved the usability of the code so much. But what I was telling him is, you know, if the, if the compiler could figure out what you were doing, it can optimize it all the way because you're, you know, you're, you're doing something that's technically undefined behavior. And, and so I said, we should clean that up. That's, it's an obvious thing if you have something that's both uh, that that is a port that's read only. It should be const and it should be volatile. And and in C plus plus, a const object has to be initialized, which is the opposite of what you want for a read only. So, some people are uh, posting other parts of the the Twitter thread that uh, that John Rager was involved in. And and there was one comment that was worth getting your opinions on because he said that, uh, that paraphrasing it that there's actually not much benefit in in volatile as opposed to uh, function calls. What's the opinion on that? Well, maybe I won't be able to qualify stuff with atomic or restrict either. <laughs> For all those C member functions. Yeah, I'm not sure when I'd actually ever use that. Uh, I, I mean, I guess I, I probably don't code in the same way most people do in sort of that context because... <laughs> we may have a show title. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the only thing that's really... Uh, you know, if, if if you're talking to hardware registers, then that's not platform across chips anyway, right? So you're locked into that architecture, that specific chip model. If you're talking to special function registers, which are you know the volatile part of your program for the most part, unless you're trying to model atomics or something, um, and at that point, 
why not just do inline assembler? Because then all the different compilers that support that will agree. And so, you know, you make some function, you know, I mean, maybe you make a class the same way uh, um, you were talking about, John, and then just have all the member functions do have a bit of inline assembler in them. I mean, if you're if you're abstracting the hardware and don't know how assembler works, you're probably not going to have a fun time anyway, right? Yeah, but I think <laughs> so. I think the idea is that it, if you're thinking about a special function register, you know, the whole everything runs off a of memory mapped stuff, right? And so we already have the concept of memory. Why why create a function to abstract the concept of trying to write to a register? Why don't we Why don't we just use this concept of memory that we already have and continue to use this concept of memory. We need a way to identify and mark up something to be volatile as the embedded world uses this term volatile. It's a it's a useful term. Well in the abstract machine we don't really have the concept of different memory being different, right? Like, you know, it goes into memory somewhere. I, you know, even as 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 Ben said earlier, uh Putting something at a specific address is already kind of hard to do without getting into undefined behavior, right? I mean, if you're not doing it in a linker script, but that's kind of masochistic anyway. You can do it with placement new. You placement new it. I think placement new does the trick, but you better be not too upset at what happens with the existing data there, I guess. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah. What about a what a, a lot of a lot of serial ports have the send and receive be the same address and you get the received bytes if you read from it and you send a byte if you write to it. So you basically have two pointers to two different conceptually different things that have the same address. No, you write an object. That's what Dan Sachs was doing. You write a single object that has send routines and and uh, receive routines and it's this pointer is pointing to that location and it's all nicely hidden from the caller. The caller just says that they want to, you know, operate on these member functions. It's a really nice abstraction. It doesn't require any assembly language. It, it's going to, it's really nice to do. It's just not legal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why. So a volatile pointer to an int or a volatile int, those make sense. I have a hard time thinking of when I would want to use a big class that has a bunch of different members and making that entire class instance volatile. I'm not saying well, I'd never come up with that, but well, no, yeah, I'm having a hard time. The, the thing is, the the data member of his class was just an int. But that's the data member and not the object itself, so you wouldn't have a serial class, a serial port class, where you declare it volatile serial class my serial port. You would have a serial port that has a member that's a volatile int. Well, he was creating the object in that place, right? He created yeah, the object that... in that place, and then he could just read and write from that object. And it was completely ab abstracted whether it, that is that a data member, is it six data? It doesn't really matter. In practice, yeah, it was just he was sitting on a a port. Um, you know, the object doesn't actually have any data members, right? And so it's this pointer is simply pointing to wherever the port was. And you would read and write. But you know, uh, write what if the port, some chips uh, make you write in 8-bit mode to the IO port. And if you're taking the this pointer and, you know, essentially... Uh, 
the compiler thinks you're writing to an int and the hardware says, hey, you wrote in 32-bit mode, so I'm just going to ignore that. That happens on some chips too. This is where this kind of gets down into the weeds. Actually, I just re- realized this episode is totally scaring people away from using C++ on embedded. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing the wrong thing, guys. I think this whole show is scaring people away from using C++. Well, That's kind of maybe, what it, maybe what it will do is it will refocus Ben. Ben, instead of all this freestanding stuff, just fix this one problem so we can actually do <laughs> memory mapped I.O. without it being illegal. Uh, I'm gonna let other you know people do the volatile paper, the the big catch-all volatile paper one day. I'll I'll, I'll stick with the uh, the tilting at windmills when it comes to exceptions and the like. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, you just mentioned exceptions. Well, you mentioned. I heard the word <laughs> exceptions and my spidey sense started tingling. Uh, that's probably the biggest uh, you know syntactic thing that we can't use on at least the bare mental end of of embedded uh for various reasons but i guess that's maybe gonna get fixed boy that would be so cool of course people who've been listening to this show know i got very excited about when we talked about that so maybe i shouldn't dominate this show talking about that Uh, um but i wouldn't mind listening to uh ben or michael or or you odin talking about because you weren't on when we talked about it earlier have you looked at this proposal of static exceptions or herbceptions or whatever they're called? Uh, and and what are your thoughts? I think my name was on some version of it at like position 200 or something. And, and I probably didn't even deserve that. But uh, the idea is to use the return path uh, because, you know, modern processors are getting registers that are wide enough that you can store a lot in the return path uh without you know having to go out of registers and uh so your return value uh people are familiar with boost outcome this is basically compiler support for boost outcome or language support for boost outcome where you have uh essentially rather than just a return value you have a variant of either the return value or the error that stopped it from you know, coming into existence. And since we can do this within the language, we can actually, you know, potentially use compiler flags to discriminate between these two things. And it sounds like it's going to cost you because it sounds like more stuff, right? But uh, on a modern processor, if you're not memory bound, you are crazy good at optimizing things, right? Almost everything is almost always memory bound. And since, you know, checking a flag that discriminates between, uh, you know, a union in registers doesn't touch even cache, uh, an outer order executing processor will be essentially always just as fast. But then you have all the advantages of it being deterministic and not needing all this bookkeeping and not needing some emergency buffer in case you run out of memory and blah, 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 which means that us guys with tiny chips can actually use them. Yeah, I think my name is also somewhere in that paper. Uh, and the way I like to think of it is that I've already got a bunch of code that uses return values to, you know, or in-out parameters to deal with their error conditions. And this is basically automating all of that work for me. I'm already comfortable with those costs. I'm already paying the costs for the little bit of extra code size and the checks right after functions 
uh, run. So this is basically doing it for me, and that's wonderful because I am so tired of typing if status is fatal return. The uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, Michael, I didn't get you. Didn't let you. Or is your name on the paper too, Michael? No, I was going <laughs> to say my name's not on the paper, so I'm actually the only non-biased opinion at the moment. So I think I should get some extra points. <laughs> no. Just um, put everybody on, so nobody can hate on it. Yeah. <laughs> No, it actually, it looks really exciting um, because it, it is this constant annoyance of um, trying to figure out how to deal with errors in a very clean way. And, you know, when you're, you're especially you know, we swap between a lot of different types of coding here. We're, we're coding small things, big things, large servers, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. And, and it feels like people taking things away from you, right? You get to a little embedded thing. And it's like, my error path sucks. You know, it looks like C code suddenly. So th this would be really nice. I, I think just just the idea that you could consistently use the same kind of error handling in all environments, because that's the that's the beauty of of exceptions is that it used to be back when I was learning to code. Um, many, many thousands of years ago, you'd look at examples and the examples would always be some little disclaimer saying, you know, um, the, the error handling has been removed for clarity or something like that. And the real problem <laughs> was that the, that everybody had their own flavor of error handling, whatever framework you were in or whatever, you know. And then when I started seeing people saying, well, I'm going to just use exceptions for error handling, we'll just clear it up. It was like, yeah, this is the way we should do it. And code should just use error handling. And then it doesn't matter what kind of error handling I use when I call your library, it just, error, you know, and then you get to embedded where it's like, oh yeah, here's the situation where you, it really doesn't work as well. And that's really frustrating because I like the idea of having a single way of doing error handling and make it universal. And then it breaks down at the very, very low end. And if we could figure out how to finesse it, which is, I think what's really going on, we're making something that's just really a return code but we're making it look like to the to the language to the writer um, as if it's an thrown exception. Wow, uh, I, that just cleans up the, the programming model so much. Love it. But it's not just uh, a return code, as uh, Odin was saying. It actually goes even further because we can take advantage of the the, the register layout and uh, avoid the, the, the cache and get all sorts of optimizations out of it. Yeah. So it is. Is, is um, the, the title of the paper is zero cost exceptions, but uh, the promise is actually potentially uh, negative cost. A better return code than return codes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that pans out. But. And certainly a better exception than dynamic exceptions. So, and it would potentially give us better interop. I mean, this is looking way into the future, uh, so don't kill me if this doesn't end up happening. But uh, it potentially gives us the option of better interop with other languages because. If you look at the way Swift does exceptions or the way uh, Rust does exceptions or the way some of these other languages do exceptions, they're also, you know, multiplexing on the return code. And, you know, since we talk to each other via C, that would have to move too. But I've heard rumors that that might not be uh, over my dead body. Then we might be able to propagate Rust exceptions all the way into C++ code. Yeah, there's yeah. talk of an ABI change to make that possible. So, yeah. Actually, that would be awesome. awesome to see. Yeah. Well, this is no fun. We're all agreeing. Um. <laughs> yeah. Somebody say something I don't agree with. <laughs> well, if you want to fight in words. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, Wait, that has nothing to do with it. 
so the, 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 my fighting words paper is basically saying, yeah, now we should make it to where you don't have to have dynamic exceptions and RTTI and all that in the language. And there are people that may not like that. Well, I hope that reflection at some point allows you to build your own RTTI. And so we can take it out of the because it's kind of all or nothing at this point, right? It's up to the optimizer to figure out what needs RTTI and what doesn't. And that's pretty impossible for it to do. So you turn on the world or not, right? It'd be nice to be able to very fine grade. Okay, I do want to know the name of this thing, and that's all I want to know. Yeah, I like to think that if you take and if, if if you get your time machine and you go to the future about you know six or ten years and grit meta classes from there, and then you throw them back to 1998, then we or, or 94 or somewhere around there, then we probably wouldn't even have RTTI as a core language feature. You just build it on top of meta classes uh, as you need it, but time machine's broken and all that so boy you need meta classes to build a time machine obviously (laughs) (laughs) meta classes is there anything they can't do (laughs) yeah is is this the new uh uh the new modules right it solves whatever problem oh yeah modules will solve that yeah meta classes will solve that um we should we should talk a little bit about c++ and embedded because this is something that dan Sachs has raised he said you know it in in his opinion for what data he had, um, it looked at one time as if use of C++ and embedded was growing, going up. But he says, we seem to have lost ground. And he believes, his contention is part of the reason we've lost ground is because we keep talking about all these features coming out of the standards committee that are not really embed friendly and embedded programmers aren't necessarily getting excited about some of the things that we're talking about. And so he says it's more of a perception thing. C++, because of things like um, ConstExpr and things like that, is actually getting more and more embed friendly but it's not portrayed that way or at least not perceived that way and so he feels like we're losing ground in the embed community and as somebody who's running a the embed conference uh what are your thoughts on that uh well i think for one we're not selling it very well but i think there is you mean we're not selling c plus plus very well we're not selling c plus plus very well but i i think there are legitimate um, critiques of C++. I think there are teams, uh, and there are teams that I've come into, you know, I've come into the company and consulting role and said, okay, you don't have any whiz-bang C++ guy. Maybe wait till you have one or wait till the, you know, advice is more mainstream. I mean, there, there are things that will bite you. And, uh, there's not a lot of like, you know, there's not just a book I can point at and say, Hey, read that. And then nothing will bite you. Right. Uh, or, you know, the freestanding proposal, for example, would help a lot because then you could say, this is the part of the STL that won't bite you, right? That's basically what freestanding is. That part doesn't bite you. The rest, maybe, maybe not, you know, read the manual. Problem is, if you read the manual, it still doesn't say, at least without their new freestanding proposal, it still doesn't say if it'll bite you or not. That's just not part of the manual of C++ yet. Um, but I think there's an even more fundamental problem. Why is C++ awesome? Right? C++ is awesome because it allows you to abstract things. It allows you to encapsulate expertise. It allows you to write something and write it in such a way that somebody else can use it without needing to understand it. Right? But in embedded, we can't really use the same encapsulation rule. Encapsulation rules. I can't even say it. Anyway, um, you know, what, what if we need to share data? How do we synchronize that? Locks don't work with interrupt server routines very well, right? 
uh, that's a lot of people are going to be using interrupt service routines because that's, you know, how we write code, at least on microcontrollers. That's why you pay more for a better microcontroller because it's better interrupt vector control, right? Um, so we can't use locks. Uh, we, you know, the optimizer is also not good at optimizing away extra data. Extra code, it'll go to town on that. Extra data, well, we don't care because RAM's cheap, right? Except on microcontrollers. Except for and there's, there's, there's a fundamental problem here. I can't just say, oh, you're not using data field X in class Y. I'll just optimize it away because the size of that class and the layout is observable at compile time. You could write a meta program that decides things based on the size of that class, right? So, so the optimizer has a very, very hard time proving that not only can I remove that, but I can shrink everything down to still have contiguous memory and blah, blah, blah. So it doesn't, right? And so, you know, somebody, uh, you know, the way it's done now, somebody takes somebody else's C code and says, oh, yeah, well, I'm not using this feature, so I'm just going to rip out that data and I understand the code, right? That model only works when you understand the code. And in C, except for macros, which is, yeah, but, okay, bracket that out, Um I understand the code so I can go edit around in the code, even as sort of a normal run-of-the-mill uh, uh, programmer, right? But if I want to look into somebody's, you know, C++ abstraction, I mean, we have powerful abstractions, but there's a lot of semantics that give us that, which people need to learn, right? So you can't just go and edit library code in C++ the same way you can in C, right? So if the optimizer can't take it away and you can't take it away, then it's bloat, right? So until we have a good way of abstracting things that works on whatever the basic interface is that we're programming against on, you know, our real time or microcontroller or memory constraint or whatever, that is, as long as we don't have that basic interface, then 90% of the reason why we're awesome uh, just doesn't translate to that domain, right? So that's my opinion. Well, I think so these are all these... These are all the negative things. Come on, Odin. Don't be so <laughs> negative. <laughs> but I think I think those same things, right? The ability to abstract, uh, the strong type system that allows us to know at compile time things are going to work in ways that we can't actually know in C. Um, there are a lot of benefits to just the core language. And people get wrapped up in that this latest library feature or the standard this isn't going to work for me or you know all these other things aren't going to work for me and therefore I'm not going to look at the language. It is kind of a really, um, it's, it's almost like the detractor. But if you just looked at the core language and what it provides for you, it, it's a superior language because of the guarantees you're going to get about your code when it compiles. You know so many things about it that are going to work. Whereas with C, you're just like, I don't know. There's so many things I don't know at the moment on whether it's going to work or not. Um, and, it, and I think if we spent more time just concentrating on the core language itself and what it does well, we could probably, you know, evangelize more people over so that they're using it. I think a really good example is listening to Jason Turner when he's being interviewed by uh, the Embedded FM group, right? Embedded FM is a podcast that's been around for a really long time. And it's just like people on two completely different planets talking to each other. And, and, it, and the reason is, is because the embedded world in general comes from C, has a concept and an idea of what C++ is, which is this bloated thing that happened in the 90s. It was actually very awful. Um, you know, and those, some of us lived through it with horrible scars, but we came out and we believe in unicorns now, don't we, Odin? Yes. Unicorns are great. Yes. Yeah, unicorns. And um, if 
if people came to the language without the baggage, they would see the benefits of it. And I think we're just not good about talking about what the benefits are of the language as is, right? Yep, sure, there's freestanding. There's all these other proposals and things around, but the language as it is right now is incredibly powerful and better than C. Yeah, I totally agree on that. I'm just not good at selling it, apparently. <laughs> could, could you, could you uh, Michael, would you... Given this opportunity, suppose you were talking to a, a an embedded programmer using C, what would you show them about C++ that they would say that they might not be aware of what they could do or how it would be more maintainable or more efficient yeah. or something? Yeah, so in, my, in the CPP Now talk that I gave, I talked a little bit about this, how um, the ability to push domain-specific, the thing that actually gets companies paid money at the end of the day, you know, business logic, things like that, pushing that up pushing chip domain stuff down, it's very hard to do. You'll never look at a C base where an embedded base where it's just like, it's just like all this stuff is wrapped together. It's horrible, right? Um, it's very hard to make nice, clean, layered systems. So you just kind of start with that. Like, well, I have, I have logic I can test on my laptop and know whether or not the logic, the business logic is just, the logic is good. That's a, that's a great place to start. But as you start looking at interfaces, interfaces in C just fall apart. Here's an interface that takes four ints. Each of those ints mean very special things. Okay, well, if I swap them when I call it, perhaps I just like destroyed something, right? And sometimes those bugs are very subtle and you, they're such that the testing environment's one where you don't really experience it. It, it. it gets experienced like first user who tries to turn the saw on and now the saw has done something very bad, right? So I think um, strongly typed systems and showing elegant interfaces is usually a good way to somebody who has experience with embedded has been through all these war stories. They know that the integration of things and the calling calling functions with the wrong parameters just happens way too much. Um, so I, I usually start with that, those two things where we can show that business log logic is getting pushed up, chip specific stuff is getting pushed down. We have nice interfaces. Interfaces are meaningful when we call them. They can't be used wrong. Well, they could be so used wrong, but you really know it. <laughs> It seems, it seems to me that among the arguments I could use, and one of them might be, if you use this, your code will be easier to understand, easier to maintain, better to, to separate into layers, all those things. Um, that's often met with a certain amount of skepticism because, first of all, maybe it's not true. And it's a little hard to know for certain. That's, you know. If I could make the argument, oh, it'll make your code 5% faster, I don't care what I have to do. I'll walk through fire for 5% faster. And I think that's one of the problems is that if, if you're really going to appeal, you're going to have to show how this stuff that would be done at runtime is now being handled by the compiler. And that will get people's attention. But just saying, oh, you, you're going to have a better interface, I just think you're going to get me met with skepticism because they're going to say, well, yeah – some things might be easier, but I have to learn C++ now, and I know that's impossible. So I think, I think there are two answers to that, the, the, our responses. The first response is uh, anybody who has done a project um, knows that the problems are you put the thing together very quickly, and it takes you forever to integrate it and debug it properly. It, for embedded systems, it's, it's really hard. Um, and knowing that by construction, the compiler told you you constructed the thing right is just huge leaps ahead. The, the other is... Um, but, but the problem is when you, when you tell me this, my first impression as a 
and I'm not really this, but, but as a C programmer who's doing embedded, my first thing is, I'm not going to believe your compiler. You see what I mean? I mean, that, I have a certain skepticism that it can do it and a certain skepticism that it will do it. So that, that's just the type system, right? So, so that's easy. But the other is the hard part. The other is, um, if I tell you that the compiler is going to optimize things and make stuff go away, you are now scared and running to the hills. Because generally, um, m most embedded programmers will use O0 to compile. They want to write C code and have this translation in their mind that that C code somehow becomes this exact assembly. They know what the machine is going to do without, without the compiler messing with it or mucking with it along the way. And as soon as the compiler starts mucking with it, then the questions are, well, how much did it muck with it? Did it muck with it too much? What did I lose? How do I know if I don't change this other thing that all my tiny constraints now change to something else? Um, which, funny enough, right? It, they still have that problem in C, but, but it's a perception. It's largely a perception problem. So having the compiler do more work for you and optimizing things away is actually, at least in my experience, has been the biggest battle of trying to get people on board. It's like, you can't depend upon that anyhow. You have to write tests. You have to write performance tests. You have to write functional tests. You have to test things to know that it's going to actually work properly. That's what you have to do. And to be able to write good unit tests, you need a good interface that's mockable, which is yeah. also hard to do in C. I mean, if you're doing like a split backend to mock it, which basically means you have you know, some header file and then you have some other uh, uh, CPP file or C file in that case, which you're going to swap out with your mocks, you know, so that the header provides the interface and then you swap out the, the backend to be able to mock it. Well, if you're not turning on link time optimization, the compiler's not going to be able to inline those calls. And if you are turning on link time optimization, you better sure as hell know what the rules of uh, optimization are. Otherwise, it's going to screw with all your code. So, so you know, uh, zero cost mocking in C is very hard to do. Uh, you, I mean, you can play around with macros, and that's oh, that's not a sharp corner, right? But uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, you, zero cost mocking in in uh, C is very hard to do. In C plus plus, you have some interface, maybe you have some traits class, specialized traits class with your mocked out thing. Default is talk to hardware, right? It's it's easy and it costs you nothing. If you build it into your initial design, it's pretty easy, but it does yeah. require designing for it. And I've sounds like you have legacy of, code. <laughs> well, I've had plenty of issues where, man, I could put a test seam here, but that's going to be a big syntactic pain point to put a test seam there, or it's going to be a performance hit. So I've run into could, those kind of issues before. But it could have been designed in. You're saying, it, had it been designed in, there could be a test seam already there. Potentially, but yeah, the, part of the designing in would be, well, maybe I put some nasty macro thing here. Maybe I put it into a separate translation unit uh, and make sure that, one, that, that the production code and the test code include the right headers depending upon which mode they're in. And th th there are some nasty things that, that, that can go on there. If you're just talking to special function registers, that may not be too bad. But if you're mocking out something that is at a higher level, it starts to get nasty. And just on that, right, the special function register, This is, you see this all the time, or as I do, maybe I'm just looking at a lot of bad code. <laughs> they, they leak up. So pretty soon you have business logic that's like accessing the special function register to do whatever it wants to do, toggling LED on. I mean, it could be as simple as that, right? And why? Well, because calling through layers is a penalty that I don't want to take. Well, it wouldn't be a penalty if 
if you use an abstraction that was zero cost, right? One that would compile away. It, it wouldn't cost you anything to write this in such a way where it would just disappear. But um, there's not a way to do that in C. So instead, I'm just going to turn the LED on. <laughs> so, Ben, what, what do you think about what Michael said about what it is that that embedded C programmers push back on? Have you fought this language war on the embedded level? Uh, I have fought it a lot on the kernel level. So as I've been pitching my papers to some of the mailing lists, it's like uh, there's the NT dev list. So that's the kernel mailing list for Windows, basically. And so I say, hey, everyone, look at this paper. First response to that paper, why aren't you using C? And, you know, n nothing productive gets done there. So it's even difficult. I, I imagine same thing happened on a lot of the embedded mailing lists to where it's like you say, hey, there's this thing about C++ that I'd like to discuss. And other, and then immediately it, it, it goes completely off topic into why are you even using C++? So that's kind of the hole that we have to dig ourselves out of on the C++ front in some of these environments is even getting past that first hurdle of can we even talk about it and not have the, the meta conversation about why are we using C++? One thing that we had at our conference, which actually comes back to what John was talking about, you know, give me speed, give me something I can't, I can't achieve in, in C. Uh, you know, we, we had, uh, you know, actually quite a few people that came from a C background, and this was their first, you know, C++ interaction, really. Um, and, you know, one of them was completely uh, 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 convinced that you could do anything in C, right? I was talking to him sort of, you know, before, before some of the talks. And then uh, there was a talk by uh, Emil Freisk, if you want to Google it, from, from the EMBO conference. And it was about a uh, sort of an alternative scheduler, right? And the scheduler leveraged the interrupt service routine hardware in the chip to do task switching in like seven or eight instructions, essentially like two instructions more than a function call, right? Mm -hmm. So just insanely fast task switching. And insanely fast locking and deterministic locking. And um, the, you know, the, 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 the thing about it that you couldn't do in C was uh, he was using template metaprogramming to essentially, you give it a list of the priorities of all your tasks and you give it a list of all the resources that you have that are shared between these tasks and who is allowed to access them. And the uh, metaprogram would figure out, okay, what's the highest priority level that it, anyone's going to access this specific resource? And if you are that priority level, you don't have to lock because who's going to interrupt you, right? And in C, you'd have to program this by hand. So somebody would have to, you know, change the priority on something because they weren't mating timer requirements. And then they'd have to go and find all the resources that have to have, you know, locking changes and blah, blah, blah. And it'd just be completely brittle. And you break everything every time you change anything or every time you added a new shared resource or whatever, you'd break the world. But using this, uh, uh, you know, template metaprogrammed infrastructure, which is presented to the user as just a list of your, you know, you pass in a list of your shared resource, you pass in a list of your tasks, you give each one of them priority. You know, it's kind of like using standard vector, which is, you know, a template, but it's still easy to use, right? So you can't do that in C, right? I mean, this is this is efficient, you know, very, very efficient, much more efficient than you would be able to write in C because there's there's an ugliness level, right? You can write everything in assembler if you want to, right? That's going to be so brittle and ugly, you're never going to finish that project, Right. And there's an efficiency level in C where you could say, okay, you can write that in C, 
but it's going to be so brittle and ugly, you're never going to finish that project. Whereas in C++, you can wrap that brittle and ugliness to where the user gets an interface that's not brittle or ugly, right? Uh, you know, we, we uh, um, uh, there is some, uh, uh, two Dutch students who did a uh, uh, paper recently. I'm not sure if it's been published anywhere yet. I've, I, I read it. It was comparing uh, our uh, um, quasi-register abstractions to hand-coded assembler and then comparing that to the C code, which the chip manufacturer shipped with the chip, right? And sadly, my my super efficient TMP optimized uh, uh, um, register interface was, you know, about uh, uh, twice, you know, ha- half as half as performant as they were able to do in these specific tests with hand coder assembler, right? But at the same time, the chip manufacturer's C stuff was about 10x slower than they could do in hand coder assembler. So C++, still 5x faster, <laughs> and it's fixable, <laughs> right? I have to go into about 10 places in my code because they, you know, they basically found a faster way to do it in an assembler than I was aware of. But you know, I can go into those 10 places in my code, and suddenly, because this is an abstraction for you know, 3,000 kinds of chips, I have to fix 10 places in my code, and then it's twice as fast, right? You, again, you can't do that in C because C doesn't have a built-in code generator. C++ does, right? So for those people who showed up at the EMBO conference from the C world, you said that was their first experience to C++. What's the situation? Are they converted? Are they coming back to EMBO to learn more about C++? What's, what's well, the situation? I think the vast majority of them are coming back. Uh, I mean, those non-converted probably didn't talk to me <laughs> uh, i mean I, I i think we sold everybody on uh um i mean well this you know this isn't the first year we did the conference like i you know i think uh, uh um there's sort of there's enough diehards that come every year at this point that i don't have to evangelize everybody the rest of the people do but uh so so i didn't talk to all the all the people that were uh using c but i mean there are people that are coming from very sort of c co- companies right you know uh, uh, you know, some of the German like industrial automation or automotive or whatever companies where they're using C, they don't, you know, they, why would you use anything besides C? And then, uh, um, you know, they, if, 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 you know, what, what uh, another good selling argument is if you tell a C programmer, just take your code and put it in a C++ compiler, then it will be a lot less efficient. Why? Because there's a lot of compiler flags that are on by default on a C++ compiler and off by default on a C compiler, right? Like canary objects. I have an array. At the end of the array, it'll put a, a, what's called a canary object, which basically just sits there with a magic number in it to see if you rip past the end of the array, right? A lot of, uh, like, you know, GCC, ARM, EABI, blah, blah, blah for, for microcontrollers has canary objects on by default for some reason, right? So C++ is going to put all those in there. You have a little more safety, but it gobbled up a little stack space, right? Whereas in C, you don't. You could turn that on in C, and then you get that, right? So, so the naive comparison of I just compiled this with default settings in C, and I compiled this in default settings with C plus plus, is not an apples to apples comparison, right? If you turn off those 10, 15, 20 flags, 
that are on in the C++ compiler. I mean, a lot of people even learn, leave RTTI on and leave inter, you know, exceptions on, and oh, it gobbled oh up my all gosh. my RAM, this terrible C++. <laughs> but yeah, turn that off, right? Um, so if you turn all that off and just run your C code on a C++ compiler with the same, with truly the same settings, right? Then C++ code, for the most part, is actually going to be more performant and smaller because of the stricting, stricter aliasing rules, because there's a few more things that are undefined behavior in C++, the optimizer has a little more room to do its thing. Uh, you know, okay, maybe you did write C that depended on that thing that's undefined behavior in C++ or depended <laughs> on, you know, I have some struct and I have an int and the pointer, well, it just supposed to cast the void so they're the same thing and then they're aliasing each other and blah, blah, blah. No, uh, you know, if you write code like that, well, okay, Keep using C. We we don't want you. No, uh, um, it you know it, it it's it's brittle anyway, right? I mean, if if you 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 can write that code in a way that's that's type safe, and when you do, then it's also C plus plus code. And so yeah, I mean, if 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 you if you tell them that and then actually show them that, uh, there are some blog posts along this uh, these lines. Um, then you have a lot of people converted already because they can still write the exact same code, right? If if you know if they're running the team's infrastructure, they don't even have to tell the team that it's a C++ compiler. I mean, they probably should, but you know, in theory, <laughs> it'll still work. But then you can start using Cons Expert, right? Or you so, know, you can start using uh, uh, function overloading or whatever else you like at C++. You don't have to use it all, right? You just have to you know switch to the C++ compiler. Will cost you time, like a day of figuring out what compiler flags and whatnot, or depending on your chip vendor, a month of fighting it. I loved your talk, by the way, Michael. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> um, but if you know, if if you have a uh, chip vendor that's not completely against you, then uh, it'll be you know a day or two of playing around, and you can get your same code to work on a C plus plus compiler, and then just pick and choose what you want to use. I mean. Don't use virtual functions on a microcontroller. But you don't have to. Nobody's forcing you. I mean... Right. So I think one of the things that I find interesting about this whole discussion of embedded and C versus C++, you know, as if it's a battle, uh, people who write C++ on embedded devices were also C programmers. Like, like, we're probably... All of us are probably just as proficient writing C as the most proficient C embedded developers are. It, yeah. It's, it's the language we have to drop down to in order to get our startup, startup code and a bunch of other stuff to work, right? So <laughs> we probably, all of us had done that for some period of time. It, it's a place where we're comfortable, just as comfortable as we are typically in C++. But what we see is that the tools in C++ provide something that the tools in C don't. So we spend a little bit more effort so that overall the project has better quality. It's typically done in less time. That's why we spend time doing it. We write plenty of projects in C because we sometimes don't have a choice. You know, it's a 4K processor with a bunch of restrictions. And um, so we're not, we're not going to spend any time on that. But where it makes sense, which is most of the cases, we spend a little bit extra time trying to get the processor and the compilers to support one another because we know that we're going to end up with better quality and we're going to use fewer resources by the end of the project. Um, and, and the customer is going to be happier or we're going to have fewer bugs coming back. It, it's just kind of this, it's, for me, it's a complete business equation. I stick the things in. I realize that it's better business for me to use this language than it is for that language. 
that's it, it it's not you know some religious war at all it's just it's better business for me all right so there's a couple of kind of linked questions i want to ask um it's in these in the in our notes for the show it says why should non-embedded devs care so should they care and why should they care why are people who are not in embedded other than hoping that Michael's going to go off on some tirade or something like that. Why are they watching this show? Why do they care about what's actually happening in embedded? How does this affect the non-embedded world? Any of the stuff that we're talking about? Maybe they're also writing code for GPUs or kernels or something like that, and those all have very similar restrictions. That's one reason. Okay. And future things. I mean, basically the freestanding is this is something that doesn't you know secretly share things under the hood. I mean, that's that's not exact but that's very close to what this freestanding subset is and i don't care if you're looking years into the future where we're programming i don't know organic processors that have a completely different memory model or whatever uh as soon as i am explicitly passing all of the state in through some interface then i understand that's my job as a programmer to synchronize that or to make sure that's on the right bus or whatever the constraints of my environment are Whereas if it's secretly being used under the hood, even though I don't see it anywhere, uh, that applies to a lot more than just microcodes. But that you know the 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 argument that I would bring is you use embedded systems. You don't want your stuff to crash all the time. Fix this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't want to like unplug all your stuff and plug it back in all day. Give us the tools, man. <laughs> all right. So that's actually that leads that's me directly into the second question. Which may be a softball question to you guys, but what is it that you want uh, the committee to give to you guys? We've mentioned freestanding. We've mentioned throwing out volatile or maybe not throwing out volatile. <laughs> what is it? You know, give me give me the top three things that if you could have these through the committee, your embedded programming life would be a better life. So my two papers plus lightweight exceptions. That's what I want. All right. So your three papers are freestanding. Uh, the free so there's a library freestanding proposal uh, that's adding stuff to the standard that, that's adding stuff to the freestanding subset that is suitable for uh, systems without an OS. My second proposal is removing a bunch or making a bunch of stuff not required that doesn't really make sense in embedded and kernel environment. So it means that exceptions and RTTI and thread local storage none of those would be required. Uh, and then there's the lightweight exception stuff, which we've talked about. Okay. That one's not my paper. That one's Herb's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, so it, I, you, you did kind of say it, but, and I assume most of the people in the audience know what freestanding, but, but again, the idea is that the, the standard does document and says that, that you may be running an environment with no operating system and in an environment with no operating system, some things are not available. And that's you're trying to widen that and say more and more things should be available because there is, in fact, a way of delivering this functionality without an underlying OS. Am I did I capture that right? uh, Sort of. So I am trying to make freestanding match that mission statement right now. It has the wrong set of library things. Uh, mostly it's got too little, but there are some things that are that, that, that are documented that are in freestanding that don't make a lot of sense there. And then on the language side, there's a lot of language features right now that don't really make sense on an OS-less system. Okay. And so that's what those two papers are trying to correct. Right. 
I think, and I don't know, Ben, if your paper handles this or not, but there seems to be this constant coupling through headers of things that just don't make any sense. Like you, you try to grab, you know, a header file to include something that you know would work perfectly well in your non-OS environment, and it yanks in like IO streams. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> so, like IO streams. Yeah, you're like, where did this come from? The iterator header pulls in IO streams. Yeah, there's a perfect example right there. The string view header pulls in std accept, and std accept generally depends upon string. So yes, I try to address that, and it's it's painful. It's like these things should work, but they don't. The compiler is just yelling at me. <laughs> We're back to spaghetti code, huh? All right, Michael, you are ISO king for the day. What are your three wishes? Ooh. Um, <laughs> mm. Wow. Uh, you want to, you want Odin to go first? He'll <laughs> <laughs> be sorry. No. <laughs> no, no, not that. The um, the herbsec herb. What? How are we saying this? Herbceptions. <laughs> That's what I want. That static exceptions. No, I, I call I, them static, static exceptions. I, I I really like the idea. Yeah. And, um, you know, it just it would clean up so much. Um, it's it's pretty high on my list. Um, I, I personally would love a lot of things to be decoupled that just when I'm pulling in a header file, I get so much crud that I suddenly can't use things anymore. It's, it's just nuts. Um, so that would be nice. I, I'm going to admit I haven't read through all of Ben's papers. I've, like, I've glanced through them multiple times. Um, sorry, Ben. But I forgive you. I, I totally suspect there's some really good things inside there. All right, Odin? Um, can you li- can you limit it to three? Uh, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, I think uh, uh, static exceptions and uh, freestanding are definitely top of my list because they're somewhat realistic. Uh, I think coroutines will eventually play a very large oh. role in uh, embedded because we because we do a lot of uh, event based stuff. But the problem with the current gore routines is going to need a lot of unpacking do you mind if we go a little bit long (laughs) Uh, um actually i would rather have a whole separate uh episode on that one i mean we can invite you back because i've been talking to a lot of people about this maybe not that much not that many people but i've been talking an awful lot to a small number of people who have some real uh serious concerns about gore routines so um i i don't want to you know we're pretty much out of time now sure. it's a bad time yeah. to start this topic <laughs> i want coroutines <laughs> yeah. i want the coroutines programming model and i think there's some implementation things that i would love to see improved but yes i like right. the idea of the coroutines programming model very much and and gore's defense I, I i would like to note like for some context here in gore's defense uh i think to be able to properly abstract coroutines with uh, C++ tools, as in, you know, small composable pieces of magic rather than one giant ball of magic, uh, you need to move a lot of stuff. And that's way too much for one guy. So I I'm definitely, you know, don't want to take away from uh, my admiration for what uh, Gore has done in that field, even though if I disagree with his coroutines. <laughs> I've... I've I've heard people who are critical of of the proposal, but I've never heard anybody say that Gore isn't a very intelligent individual. <laughs> he's very smart, and he knows he knows what he's doing. There are people who aren't crazy about this individual proposal, but um, but nobody's 
nobody's saying that that Gore is lacking in uh, uh, in capability. That's that. I don't think that that's on. Well, and effort. You know, I mean, you know, there's yeah. So so yeah. instead so, of like new features, John, and all that stuff, I yeah. you know really my number one thing would be if we could really just take care of this this memory mapped I/O and how we utilize the word volatile and stuff, so that there's just like we all know what it's going to do and. And I think we all know in the sense like we keep doing the same thing because compiler vendors so far haven't broken what we ask the compiler to do. But if it was just written down as this is what it is going to do, we would all just be comfortable right. with that, right? Because and I guarantee the you the language, compiler writers want that too. I'm sure they the do. The compiler writers want that too. They want to be able to say because they want to do optimizations right up to the line. And if that line's not defined, yeah. that's really hard for them. But it's hard for you as programmers to know, well, I want to code right up to the, you know, I want to code from the other side up to the line and, and they want to optimize up to the line. And if that line is, is fuzzy, it's not good for anybody. But the language is so, I think the language is so powerful as it is, the core bits of the language that if, if we could remove some of the things that are the big uncertainties and, you know, at the end of the day, mapping addresses to something that we can use constantly because that's the entire world of the embedded um that's huge but the rest of it i i don't know i'm happy with the language all right what a great place to stop <laughs> um the first the first person to ever wish anybody safe coding on this show was michael and so you want to lead us in uh wishing that for everyone <laughs> absolutely to, uh... <laughs> safe coding everyone Safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding.